everybody. So for those of you who get the newsletter that we put out in advance of the show, it's the Crosstown Conversations e-newsletter. You saw the cartoon with my graphic artist friend Matthew Foreman where I, you know, I was in the middle of watching all these kids on television last night, you know, calling out for their mamas and their papas and just freaked out. And then I saw this picture from a Jurassic Park commercial with a dinosaur running down the hall chasing a kid. And all of a sudden, Trump's face pops onto the dinosaur in my mind. And I called Matthew and I said, hey, Matthew, can you do a cartoon? And he did it. And it's it's great. I put it on Instagram, too. So y'all go look at Instagram. I think uh, hashtag Jurassic or um, uh, Trumpasaur uh, might get it um, and so on uh, from uh, Gene Nathan personally. All right. Yeah, these are very scary times. Um, and as I said in the opening of my newsletter, we don't need Jurassic Park to remind us. We have our own dinosaurs on the scene threatening the lives of children and families, not to mention our entire American experiment with democracy. All right. So he finally broke down today because the pre- I have never, I have never in all of my too many years. I'm not going to admit how many. I've got a big birthday coming up this summer, and I'm still trying to figure out how to have a party without admitting the numbers. <laughs> I've never seen this level of pushback and outrage around any issue. Now, I wasn't here for the big fire at the in the sweatshops in New York in the beginning of the century that triggered the whole labor movement. I wasn't here for that, but I studied it. And um, I was here for the Vietnam protests, which were huge and big. But journalists work so hard to be objective and to cover the facts, despite what the president loves to say about them. <laughs> he could not fight back the images and the sounds of children, the mama and the papa. There was no pushing back on that. You couldn't call that fake media. That was about as real as you can possibly get. And so today, crediting his wife and his daughter, who I'm sure were Adam, but so was the, finally, the Republican leaders and church leaders The evangelicals who have stood by his side with all kinds of crap, finally, everybody was saying, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And my favorite, I I was watching uh, the television just before I came over to see the latest developments. And there's this guy, Corey Landowski, is that how he says Mm -hmm. his name? He's Polish. He has to be Polish, I'm guessing, from that name. His, he, he had to have come over here, his parents, as immigrants. We are all immigrants in this country, every single last one of us, from the Mayflower people and even the Native Americans. We call them Native Americans. They came from Asia over Bering Strait. We're all immigrants. So how dare we say you can and you can't? It just it blows my mind. The whole thing is, and then, and the way he does things is just okay. I'm going to stop my Rachel Maddow rant now, and just, 
I have with me somebody who actually knows firsthand what has been happening in the field, not just now, but over time. And so, Homer, I want to say Lopez, but is that how you pronounce your last name? Yeah, Homero Lopez. Homero Lopez, thank you. I studied French. What a stupid thing that was. (laughs) What did I know? So um, he has been working on the front lines. Um, He he works with an organization called the Immigration Services Legal Advocacy, and he's a managing attorney for them. I, I, I share with me what you have been seeing over time and and how you see this moment, because it's not over. We know it's not over. Locking up families indefinitely. It sounds like he put through some kind of a rule today, not just to allow kids to stay with parents, but to end the 20-day limit on how long you can keep kids in, in detention. Did you know that? Yeah, so I'm... I'm not going to take credit for being on the front lines necessarily, right? That's our that's our great friends who are doing the work down in Texas and Arizona and California, um, giving all the credit to them. And if you want to reach out to organizations like that, there's ProBar in Harlingen, Texas. There's Raices also in Texas. Um, Al Otro Lado, which is out in California. Um, I've got to get you to send me these. I'll send you all of that. So you can, yeah, the Florence Project in Arizona. I'm not finished with this story by any means. I today. understand. Yeah. Um, they're the ones that are really on the front lines with this particular issue. Um, however, because people can't be – there's not enough space, right? We have so many people coming in, and our government doesn't have the space to detain them the way they w- they want to do, that we are also seeing people here in the detention centers in Louisiana, So we, through ISLA, our organization, Immigration Services and Legal Advocacy, what we do is we go to the detention center in Pine Prairie, Louisiana, and we um, represent in Pine Prairie. Pine Prairie was one of the places that was hit by the uh, the storm that hit Houston, if I'm not mistaken. I think it did. Yes, they had to shut that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Um, So Pine Prairie, Louisiana, has a detention center, which is where we go, and we have been. interviewing and seeing people there who have been separated from their children, right? Their children were taken away at the border, sent to a detention facility or an Office of Refugee Resettlement shelter um, while the parent was either prosecuted or sent to an immigration detention center while he or she, well, in our situation, he is um, going through with his asylum case. And so we've been seeing it from the father's side when the father's already here in the detention center, not knowing where their child is, not knowing how to get their child back, trying to coordinate from inside a detention center in middle of Louisiana without really having access to an attorney, um, trying to coordinate a ch- getting their child released with their child who's detained in our client's situation in New York, trying to get that child released to his cousin who's in Houston. All of it happening from within the detention center. Um, so it's a, it's a terrible situation. We obviously disagree with the, with the approach that's being taken. And while the executive action that the president announced today, which is to stop family separation, he's going back to, this, to what was still a problem and that we'd been advocating against since 2014, which is detaining 
families in a unit but still keeping them in prison basically right yeah, yeah. and that's still a problem right it's yeah. not i mean because that you, has to be we, we talk about the trauma right and how the trauma is affecting these kids in a way that could be brain altering and life altering but being with your family in prison how humiliating is that right there to begin with and we'll go to what's going on in the countries the home countries because obviously that that's the big gorilla in the room so to speak that nobody i didn't hear anything about it in the past few days but um i i need to understand what in the hell is going on and um what if anything are we doing to uh, address it and you have again this this trumpistor up there who what is he talking about he's talking about um cutting back aid to countries Coming back, sounds like my sound. Could you hear me at all? Do I have to repeat anything? It's okay? Okay. Um, so I, we had just a little moment uh, there on the audio. But um, I, I was saying that, um, you know, I, I want to go back, and not immediately, but we're going to go to the subject of what's happening in the home countries and, and the ludicrous uh, concept on the part of the uh, of the Trumpasaur, that somehow uh, it's a good idea to cut off aid to the countries that um, are are the, the, having enormous problems, obviously, of poverty, or we wouldn't have probably the numbers of people that are involved in the drug trade and killing each other and so on. So, um, But let me understand something. When, when I go into a, a medical clinic here in New Orleans, I'm just, I'm just going to see my doctor. They put a little plastic band around my wrist mm-hmm. that says who I am and my date of birth. I didn't see any plastic bands around those kids' wrists. How do they know who they are? How, especially with the infants, are they going to be able to reconnect those kids with their parents? I don't get it. How does that work? So the the process for how a child gets processed through immigration is typically – and. One of the things is when a child is unaccompanied, right, when a child shows up at the border without a parent or legal guardian. So they could be with a cousin. They could be with an uncle. They could be with they could be by themselves. When a child shows up that is not with a parent or or a legal guardian, if they are under the age of 18, they are considered an unaccompanied alien child, which is when this when when they then get taken into custody by the Office of Refugee Resettlement. So the Office of Refugee Resettlement falls within the the Department of Health and Human Services, and what their main process or their main concern is is to reunite that child as soon as possible with somebody here in the U.S. who can take care of them. They have certain tiers. The top tier is parents, obviously, parents and legal guardians. So if that child comes and a parent is here who they can reunite them with, they will try to reunite them with that parent. If it's not parents, they try to go to family members. If not family members, friends of family. And if not, then last last um, resort is foster. foster care, federal foster care. Mm-hmm. Um, they, in that process, they're trying to be, you know, the child typically has a phone number or knows something. If they do, sometimes they don't. Yeah, I was going to say some of them were under four years old. Don't yeah. tell me they have a phone number. So, so the problem is – or the problem that was created by the Trump administration is that when parents came with their children, they were either kept in a family unit and sent to detention in Dilly, Texas or in Carn City, Texas, Artesia originally in New Mexico – 
that we obviously disagree with that detention process as well. We don't think that's a good process. We don't think that's good for children. We don't think that's good for family. It's definitely not a good situation for due process so that the person can get an attorney and be able to present their case. But on on top of that, they would oftentimes release these family member, the, the mother or the father with their child, either with an ankle bracelet or with you have to go check in on certain dates with ICE or you have to be you have to give them a phone number and an address where they can call you and within 5 minutes you have to provide a certain code so we have alternatives to detaining people that's for the adults but what about but even for the kids? children like they were doing that with the, they were keeping them as family units and doing this check-in process well, so, but now when they separated them now when they now what has happened is when they've decided to prosecute the parent for the criminal entry or for the illegal entry, they are separating them, forcing the child to now be considered an unaccompanied child and being sent to ORR um, detention, the Office of Refugee Resettlement. And then they're trying to place them with somebody else. The, the other part that people don't typically talk about in this process is that in that situation, when the child is at the, at the ORR shelter, the government is also starting an immigration proceeding against that child. So they then, once the parent gets released from criminal detention and gets sent to immigration detention, the parent is now pursuing their own immigration case. The child also has their own case going on before the immigration court. Typically, the child's case is very dependent on the parent's case, and so or vice versa. And so we can end up with situations, given the current policy, to where a child would win their case and stay, and a parent would get deported. Or a parent would win their case, but the child would lose, and the child would be ordered deported. We could possibly end up in that kind of a terrible it's situation. It's insane. Yes. It's just plain insane. I, I, and, and think about the money. Here's a guy who comes in, and he pretends to be some kind of businessman. Of course, he bankrupted almost everything he ever did until he got a lot of foreign money, especially from Russia. Yeah, why is he so nice to Russia, everybody asks. What a ridiculous waste of time. It's because he gets money from them for his failing businesses. And this guy has the nerve to, to, to institute policies that are insane to begin with, inhumane, I say basically incompetent. If anybody out there in this audience, which I doubt is the case, or, someti- or sometimes you know, some of the lists of people that get my newsletters, they probably do not agree with me politically. But if, if you don't want to think that he's politically on the wrong side of the fence, think about the incompetence of setting up a situation such as you described where you have these parallel um, charges being pursued and having to go through the bureaucratic process that costs a lot of money, not to mention all that detaining and managing the care of all these people. It just goes on and on. Okay, what got us into this? He obviously he denied it, but look, I've, as I say, I've never seen journalists angrier and more willing to 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 call things as they really are, calling him a liar. They used to start saying, well, that's not true, or that may not be true, but now they just say he's lying. Okay, but but in the past couple of days, people were just, I, I saw one anchor in tears at the end of the show last night, um, just 
reading what was going on and just not believing it. Okay. All of this is triggered by a flood of people trying to escape circumstances in their home countries. Um, Nicaragua? The, the main three countries that are, that are sending people over, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. Those are the three countries that... Honduras, and what's the third one? El Salvador. El Salvador. Okay. What's going on? Um, Guatemala is primarily an economic issue. Um, poverty. Mostly poverty. Um, there are gangs and there are problematic issues as well from the, the government not providing support. But it is primarily a poverty issue from, from people coming in from Guatemala. Honduras and El Salvador are both basically run by two gangs. They were run by two gangs, which I don't want to call them gangs because calling them gangs makes people think of, you know, teenagers down the street. The street. You it's know, more like huge mafia organizations correct, that, that were, are, are more powerful than the government. Right. So in the 1980s, El Salvador and Honduras, they both went through civil wars. They both had in 70s and 80s. They both went through civil wars. They went through some issues. And in the United States at the time, we were detaining people, obviously, criminal in criminal incarceration. And prior to deporting them, they stayed in the United States in the prisons. They learned the American gang process within the prisons. <laughs> and then we deported them back to a country that had just finished civil war and had this structure of a military set up. And we brought – and in deporting them, they then, when they went there, set up – both the combination of the gang with the military and made this huge criminal organizations that they've created. The MS-13 as well as the 18th Street gangs are are the two. What's the other one? 18th Street gang. 18th Street? Yeah, Barrio 18 is what it's called. Um, Those two are the two major, um, and they're basically the government. Right, the government does nothing against them. The police is typically the government does nothing against them, or now, does nothing to stop them. They basically run the country. Uh, okay, and that is because they have the arms, they have the money, they have the training. They extort people. They they run huge parts of the country. They basically in Tegucigalpa, which is the capital of, of Honduras, they're the ones in charge. Um, now, this was true in Colombia also, correct. right? And Colombia, I'm, I'm told, and I don't know to what extent this is true because they haven't been in the news lately, but there, there was a point at which people were starting to say, okay, Colombia beat it. They beat the gangs. Is that true, number one? <laughs> um, I mean, I think Colombia has a cartel system or had a cartel system the way Mexico more has of a cartel system, which is the – Government and the cartels kind of both kind of understand, like, okay, that's happening, but I'm going to kind of ignore it, and you do your own thing. In Honduras and El Salvador with MS-13 and with the 18th Street, they don't necessarily abide by those same rules. It's more of they want to be in control. They want to be the ones handling Everything they want to be the ones that are the deci- are the decision makers, as opposed to cartels, which typically just don't want to get, don't want to have government involvement, don't want to have the government doing anything against them. In Honduras and Salvador, the MS-13 and the and the 18th Street gangs are more interested in running the show. And so, what what um, 
where's the breakthrough going to come? It's a really good question. Oh, 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 wait, before I get to that, before I get to the breakthrough, um, so what we hear is one story I heard, for example, in the past couple of days was a mother talking about how her teenage son was basically told, get in the gang or we're going to kill you. Right. And that's why she left. And that's why she was on, on the run. So um, is that is that what I just described? Is that pervasive? That is that's definitely pervasive. Um, the there's the recruitment issue. There's the extortion issue. There's the raping of women, the, the viewing women as property. The there's an article about how, you know, you're not allowed to be pretty in Honduras is a, a girl who came over is saying that. Because it's a crime to be pretty. If you're pretty and a gang member wants you to be their girlfriend, you're their girlfriend, which doesn't mean, you know, he buys you chocolate and brings you roses. It means... He means he has the right to your bed. Correct. And has the right to pass you along with his friends and you're part of the gang. You belong to them as a as a property. And so that those are the, the main things, that they're attacking the children, right? So people... We're putting up with it. We're dealing with it, especially the extortion, right? They'd pay their extortion fees, and they'd put up with it. It became a much larger issue once it started to get to the children. You know, I I was um, an amateur, really, I would have to say, a history student. I studied a lot of history in college. And one of the things I loved was ancient history because, wow, you're at such a distance from it. So you could really see the trends over time. And when a nation or a civilization was declining, you would start to see this whole syndrome you just described. This is as old as humanity. Probably goes back further. But And one thing that I left out, obviously, is the traffic of drugs, right? The, the desire to, 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 to the to United here, States. To Correct. us. Yeah. You know, so, that we're buying the drugs that's yeah. empowering, that's giving them the money to, to dominate the scene. And MS-13 and 18th Street Gang, what they're trying to get into or what they run, what they get their money is through this drug trafficking as well as human trafficking as well as causing. So part of that also driving it is they're in that middle point, right? They're, they're Central America. Um, and so they're part of that trafficking process. There's um, there's reports about MS-13 being present in um, in what's it called Australia because there's such a heroin um, demand in Australia and so they've even been able to make it out there because there's a, there's a demand they're going to do it and so that that's another that was, big that, was part. A, that was the other question I was going to ask just real quick what kind of drugs are they um, trafficking in basically it, everything it, yeah whatever it is that will make them money they will traffic in okay all right. What's the breakthrough? Is there a breakthrough? <laughs> Is there a breakthrough becomes a question. Um, I think it requires a lot of political will, a lot of going back. And, I mean, I'm not the politician to, to really go through this in detail, and I would think a lot of more expert. there's a lot more experts out there who could speak of it in better detail. Um, but it is going to require a lot more of a nuanced view of it and how to address the very multiple layers and the generational Nuance is from a guy who calls uh, immigrants um, infestors, infestations into America when these people are trying to escape the infestation of criminals in their country. It's the same thing that came Where, up with. Where's the nuance going to come from? <laughs> it's the same thing that came up with with when we were talking about when or when the Trump administration was talking about the, the you know banning Syrians, right? 
saying that they're all themselves criminals. Who do you think they're fleeing from? Right? They're not they're not fleeing because the terrorists are in charge in their home country. Same thing with people coming from Central America. They're not fleeing because the people they want they want to participate with MS-13. They're fleeing because they're afraid of MS-13. You see, and here's the thing that that drives me crazy. The entire globe is is seeing these hordes of humanity on the move from countries that are a mess in one way or another. And I believe strongly that one of the reasons that Russia is so heavily involved in Syria is deliberately to destabilize it and push people out of it into Europe, which is then completely destabilizing the old, quote, post-war liberal order and making that entire continent vulnerable along with all of the vulnerable countries in uh, all of the developing part of the world. Uh, I, 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 I think this is a, an incredibly um, monumentally dangerous situation, and I don't see how you address any of this without getting into these countries and figuring out what is it going to take to undermine the the gangs. What is it going to take? Are we in there at all? Yeah, we I mean, we, we are, we of course. Be. We definitely are. Yeah. We're in everywhere. What, but what are we doing? Um, I mean, one of the things that I think a lot of people have pointed out that is different about this administration is, for example, under the Bush administration, there were PSAs that were being sent out to the – PSAs. To the, uh, public service announcements. So the government, the U.S. government was buying airtime in the home countries, telling people not to come because of the dangers, because of, you know, the paths, if they were going this way or that way, what to avoid. Like there was, it was, it was understanding that, yeah, we want to protect our borders, but at the same time, we know people are coming. So, and it's a dangerous thing and telling people how to do things or how not to do things. In this situation, what this administration tends to be doing is just addressing it once it's here. There seems to be no proactive approach. There seems to be nothing of trying to deal and work with the other countries in any way. PSAs aren't necessarily the greatest things, but it was something, right? There was also back-channel talks that were going on, but there's there's these things that can be done that we're not. We're saying we're not going to really work with other people and then when people get here, we're going to do the worst thing we can to them to force them to not stay. The the main thing, the last thing I want to really address is the fact that this is being addressed as a deterrent, right? They're saying they want this to be a deterrent. This is how we're going to stop people from coming. You deter people by making the alternative worse. So what we're trying to say basically by saying we're going to make this a deterrent is we're going to make it worse when you get to the United States than what it is in Honduras, El Salvador, and, and Guatemala, that is a really terrible message for us to be sending, especially as the United States, as the beacon of hope, as this country that we're supposed to be, to say we're going to set you up in a situation where fearing the death of your children, fearing the rape of your daughter, fearing your own death is going to be worse or is going to be the better alternative, and you're going to want to stay in that home country. I'm going to join in Larry Powell now. Hello, Larry. Hello. Larry is an historian and um, has seen this not only here but in other places. And, you know, one of the points I want to make uh, uh, in this show, because I don't want to forget this, we're talking here about a policy of separating kids from parents, which is horrendous 
and has raised the ire of a broader spectrum of the population of this country than ever. However, we have to remember that we separated kids from parents under 400 years of slavery in the United States of America. This is not the first time. This is, this is not a new thing. So, um, you know, shame on us now for what we've been going through. However, I do share a little bit of what you're going to hear from um, Larry. You don't mind me calling you Larry. It's Lawrence Powell, of course, and he's written some really interesting books that many of you have read, and I'll let him read some of his credits. But um, he's going to say that out of the worst of times, sometimes, comes the resistance and the and the um, pushback. And so for the first time today, I've felt that maybe we are still the United States of America when he finally had to acknowledge that this policy was so draconian, so inhumane that the country mobilized against him. And, 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 and it is a sign maybe of Lawrence, which you're going to tell us that the the resistance is what is the other side of this. Well, I just you know it's not always the case that uh, you know from the seeds of tragedy comes uh, you know some some better benefit. Uh, but I do think in this case uh, that his strategy of trying to gin up his base, to consolidate his base by um, appealing to their basis uh, instincts, uh, while that is successful, he's also consolidating and ginning up and amplifying and intensifying the the opposition. And I, I do think that's sort of one of the paradoxical gifts of, of this man's uh, uh, behavior and his policies and the people around him to enable him in those policies. You can see it in you know, and the Me Too movement and uh, the Black Lives Matter and uh, the mobilization of these students after the Parkland shooting. Uh, and just in the polling. I mean, the polling shows that uh, there's a, a big intensity gap. Out. So that that's all very hopeful and means we just have to, you know, build on that. And, uh, so that's what I take some... some uh, consolation from well yeah so um i i sure hope so but you know with the exception of my husband who was one of the few people i know who during the election in the early part of the election predicted that trump was going to get elected um we many many people felt oh there's no way he's gonna get in there's you know uh uh, people just can't be buying that stuff and, and, and so on. So um, the hope that um, uh, enough people are horrified by what they're seeing and are taking it to heart as his policy and not just some phenomena of the moment that evolved out of a misguided or or 
ill-handled situation. Are, are they really, in other words, is, is the resistance really going to grow sufficiently to get people out to knock on doors and vote? Well, I think the signs are, you know, uh, are cause for some cautious optimistic, guarded optimism. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm a historian, I'm not a soothsayer. I can't tell you what's going to happen, but I mean, I do have a feeling if, that, uh, you know, you've got to organize and you've got to mobilize. You've got to get out to vote. And I think most of all, you cannot try to defeat this man by appealing to, those, to his issues. Uh, that would normalize him as a politician. I think you have to treat him for the threat, the moral and political threat he is to democratic norms and decency and dignity. Uh, and I think if you do that, if you say this is a referendum about who we are as a people, uh, that I do think there is reason for uh, for hope. Uh, I mean, you're not going to pull people off his base. They're so uh, tribalized, uh, tribalistically committed to him that there's nothing you say or do or he does, says or does that's going to going to weaken that support. Well, no, nor. Um, is the but, but but I think the, the, the challenge is to mobilize the opposition, and I think you mobilize him as not talking. You, you know, you, you got to talk. You got to treat him as a threat, a moral threat. This is a moral problem we're facing, and, and that's the tack I think we need to take. And I think he's giving us ammunition. Okay, now there are two two things I want to touch on. So number one. Um, uh, despite how craven uh, it seems that people are to be supporting him, we also know that there are a lot of very angry, disenfranchised people out there, whether they're older white people or they're younger minorities coming out of school without the skills that are needed for the new tech co economy that we have. There are people who are really, um, they're in trouble. They, they, they don't have a, the future that I grew up with in the 50s when we were looking at America and, and thinking, wow, we all have an opportunity. We can all be somebody. We can all do something. We're going to get a decent education, and, and, and there are jobs out there, and so on and so on. Um, uh, there's a lot of people in this country who don't, don't see that right now. There's a lot of really um, kind of depressed and disenfranchised folks. So I have a sympathy with them. You know, oh, I, I, I don't. But wait, I, let, let, let me yeah. let, let me just go, go to the point that I want to make, um, and then I want to ask you, Larry, to, to 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 think about it. So, I don't hear the Democrats, and I'm a Democrat, saying sending any messages or doing anything that is making is is countering the. Essentially, authoritarian um, message, which is always appealing to people in trouble. Let's face it; in in history, we've seen it over and over again. When people are in trouble, they look for a strong leader to to fix it. They look for right. for dad or God or a strong leader to fix it, which doesn't work. But um, I, I'm so disappointed in the Democrats. They, you know, the, the, the Democrats in the state of Louisiana haven't said a word yet. I was happy to see them acknowledge the Juneteenth um, end of slavery yesterday, but I sent them back a message saying, 
great message. However, um, so do you have anything to say about this this separation of kids from their parents that's going on right now, and and how reprehensible it is as it was for slaves who got separated kids from parents? I mean, where, where's the message? Where are you? Do, what do you? Where we've got these legislators up in Baton Rouge who who own us right now and who are um, refusing to make sure that there's a, that there aren't massive cuts to health care and education because they they're still hewing to this totally invalid old dogma about how bad taxation is for God's sake. So, so Larry, I, I mean, I, you, you hear what I'm saying? Well, here, here, here's my, my take. I mean, yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, the folks who have, uh, many folks who have supported him uh, are, are doing it up for, uh, I think, kind of uh, what's the matter with uh, Kansas reasons. Uh, they're looking for scapegoats and they're looking for people to, uh, to blame it on. Uh, they're the victims of policy and impersonal forces. And I do think that the Democrats have to, and I think some of them are doing nationally, you know, craft a platform and a program that appeals, addresses their needs of health care, job training, and so on and so forth. But when you hear the debate, it's about do we emphasize lunch bucket issues or emphasize identity politics issues? And I, by identity politics, I really think it means a definition of who we are and who we've always been. You know, uh, an inclusive country, and I and he he is foursquare against it, and we have to make that the central issue, especially yeah. to get people out. And that, that's all I'm saying. I mean, this is a, you know, this is one of these crises. And I, I I'm trying to think of a time in American history where there's a parallel of precedent. And I tell you the truth, and I'm a historian, originally of Reconstruction. You have to go back that far to Andrew Johnson. When you had a president who was so cynical that he did everything he could to polarize folks, to appeal their basis nature, uh, uh, to uh, stir up uh, racial polarization, and that's that's the parallel I see. And I think the only way you address it is is this is a referendum on who we are as a people. And I don't say you. Everything's at the expense of, you know, economic policy that's and uh, equal uh, economic justice. But but this is this is a critical time right now. I want to agree with Larry on especially the moral part. I think, you know, making this a Democrat Republican issue, making it a, a politics thing, isn't what what is going to bring people to come to some kind of solution. Um, if we see what it was that made him right, so in the year and a half that he's been in office, there's he hasn't backed down from any big controversy. This is the first time he's backing down. The response was from everybody, right? It was across the board. It was and it Republicans. Was You're it right. Was, You're absolutely and right. it's based on that morality. It's yeah. based on that this is who we are, and this is not acceptable from where we come, from who we are as a country, as a people. We cannot accept this. Yes, there's still a chunk of our of our population that's going to accept it and is okay with it, but the majority and the substantial majority is not going to support that. And that's not – and so, you know, how the Democrats are doing it, how the Republicans are doing it is not what we want to really focus on. It's the issue itself is the problem, and that's what we need to get to. Um, as I stated earlier, you know, 
2014, family detention was happening. And the opening of Artesia in New Mexico, the opening of Dilly in Texas, and the opening of, of the detention center in Karn, these things set up the process for it to continue. And that was under Obama, right? And I don't care who started it. I don't care who's continuing it. I want it to end is basically the point that we want to get at. I'm going to join in um, Leila Halas, um, who's a professor at law at, at Tulane University and an expert in immigration law. And um, Leila, I, I, I imagine because you were with your daughter at her event that you didn't hear much of the discussion on the show so far. Is that right? That's right. I'm, I'm sorry to say. Okay. Well, we've covered um, a lot of the uh, issues that are um, dominating the news at the moment. And I don't know if you heard today's news. You must have that. Yeah. He did back down. And um, you, you did hear the comments just this this moment uh, from Omar, who's really em- emphasizing the moral. Well, both um, uh, um, uh, Larry Powell, who's also with us on uh, on the phone, uh, on another line, um, and, and he are saying it, it's 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 really more about the the um, moral issues, and and I was talking a little bit about the the uh, political um, issues, and and I'm kind of uh, angry with my own uh, party, such such as it is a party. I can't even think of it as a party anymore, really. Um, but uh, the Democrats, it seems to me, have, have been a, a bit asleep at the wheel during this whole thing, too. Um, you work with the courts, and you, and you work with these uh, immigration laws, and, and now we have this situation that um, is a, okay, he, he, they can no longer say that kids are being separated from parents, but they're still going to be putting families in jail for how long, we don't know. I, I still feel I, I would be humiliated if I was in prison with my family, with or without my family. It's got to be horrifying, traumatic, and have um, life-altering implications. So um, where do you see the opportunities through the, the court system to address, if this is what you want to focus on, quite frankly, I'm interested in your perspective in, in general, just as I have been from these two gentlemen. So uh, let me not limit it to uh, the issue of the courts. But I am curious because there are some increasing indications of people taking this to the courts. And is that going to make a difference? Yeah, so I think the law can be a powerful tool, and and we're going to have to see how it all unfolds. Um, There there were legal challenges to this policy of family separation. The ACLU filed a class action lawsuit, which, um, you know, just days ago a federal judge um, allowed the the suit to continue um, so that this is a live lawsuit um, challenging the, the practice you know, of family separation. Um, if, they, if they truly are ending the practice of family separation, you know, that lawsuit may go away. But one of the really concerning things about what's happening, um, which what was stated in the executive order is, you know, they're trying to replace the nightmare situation of separating families with this nightmare situation of putting families in jail. And in particular, they're trying to attack the Flores settlement. Um, yeah. So, you know, and I don't know how much you've already Well, basically what it means is they can keep people in there indefinitely, right? I mean, the Florida settlement now. says that children should not be detained or put into jail-like facilities, and that's, that's good law right now mm-hmm. under the court order. And so, you know, he's asking the attorney general to try to reopen that 
the, the to modify that um, that settlement. Oh, um, I I can't imagine the judge is, is going to um, suddenly say it's okay to detain children indefinitely. Um, and um, and there's a good reason why you know we have um, that court settlement. There were you know decades of litigation uh, because children were being mistreated um, in jail and uh, and you know beyond kind of like ha- having a really poor treatment. You know, critics, uh, I mean, um, sorry, experts agree that uh, it's just detrimental to child welfare to be put in a jail-like facility. So, so, you know, I think think that's really concerning if they really are trying to um, detain children for long periods of time to not release them, um, which, you know, is what the Flores litigation says, that that's the first priority, to release um, children if possible. Um, And and if, if they're putting them in facilities that aren't licensed, um, to care for children, again, that's a violation of law. So, so what he wants to do, you know, putting all of these families in jail together, uh, it, it seems like it's going to violate uh, the, the existing laws. And I imagine that there's going to be litigation um, to follow. So, in other words, um, you know, it, that, that's the big question. Now what? Because the now what sounds abysmal. It just sounds confusing. And again, I've used the word a couple times in this show, incompetent. I mean, aside from the inhumanity of what's going on, the incompetence is, is stark. So um, the courts then maybe will be stepping in to say, um, actually, no, you can't really do that. You can't lock up these families indefinitely. And you can't just put kids in jails where there's no provision for the services that they need. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Um, you know, we do have a fam- we do have some family detention uh, facilities that exist, uh, but they were the subject of a lot of litigation because children weren't being treated right and some of them weren't properly licensed to care for children. So we don't, there aren't, you know, already a lot of facilities to, to take in these families. So what, you know, what he's trying to say in the executive order is that we should um, find as many facilities as possible to put people in uh, and, and to, you know, hold them together and to try to change this, this floor is this court agreement. Um, and, you know, I, I don't see the way he can do that. Uh, we have laws that say children shouldn't be detained or put in jail like facilities. We should prioritize releasing them to a parent or legal guardian while their case is ongoing. And if there is a reason that child has to be detained, it has to be in a licensed facility. Um, you know, they have a period of time where they, uh, you know, can be in an unlicensed facility, but it's very short. So I don't, I don't see a way forward for him to proceed how he wants to without breaking the law. Uh, and so, so if he does do that, um, you know, certainly um, there's going to be a lot of litigation. So, I, sorry, and just to expand a little bit on on what Layla's saying. And correct me, Leila, if I'm wrong, but I think Flores only applies to children that are de- that children that are determined unaccompanied children. The Ninth That's- Circuit, the Ninth Circuit expanded it, I think, to to children that entered with fam- with parents. Yes. And so that's the area of the continuing litigation is can the rest of the country expand it also to children with their families? And so then that would make this entire process in violation of of the Flores. And. Two other little um, uh, kind of um, 
I don't know whether to call them little tributaries off the river or like bayous not really connected to the river, but definitely having an impact. Is a, a story that I uh, came across in the past few days about how budget cuts being put through at the national level are reducing the um, trained professional people in in the prisons uh, at the federal level. And so you've got situations where there are untrained secretaries and nursing, healthcare people, and so on, um, taking on jobs that are very dangerous in dealing with um, uh, folks who are incarcerated. You have that going on. That's like a whole separate and, and uh, that's going to be impacted by this, too, because uh, think of those images that you had of, you know, these mass, um, I, I don't know what you call it, but uh, when you, you're taking in, a, 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 how, how would you describe it, somebody here who's, who has better legal language than me, when they're taking all these people in at the same time and saying, okay, have you agreed, are you guilty? And they all say yes, and like they're the all in mass, jail. The mass trials they're doing. Mass trials, thank you. And uh, I don't know why I couldn't think of the word trial. But um, uh, so that that's another, <laughs> we're just, we're packing more and more people into prisons when we're having budget cuts that are cutting out the professional people who know how to actually deal with the prisons. That's what I call incompetent. I, yeah, I think this raises a, a really big question. And so if, if we need, if they, if there's going to be a need to expand, you know, if, if, he's, if he's suggesting that there, there's a need to expand family detention, that's, that's a very expensive process. Uh, and so he's going to have to, to make sure there are dollars um, allocated for that. So, so I think that's, that's another kind of, you know, logistical challenge to, to what's being put forward right now. So you missed the part of the, the uh, show when um, uh, I was really talking at length with Homer about the um, conditions, the situation with the, the dominance of the cartels um, uh, in, in um in, in Guatemala and in, in uh, El Salvador, and how that is this the uh, and 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 there's that, that situation is so uh, pervasive and overwhelming that it really means that that families are being challenged. There, the kids are uh, being told you you're either in the gang or, or you're dead. Where the daughters are being conscripted as essentially as um, prostitutes for the uh, people running these cartels. Um, I, what is your perspective on that, um, Layla? I mean, I, I know that's not your area of expertise necessarily, but um, ex- explain to me what you see. Um, yeah, MS-13 gang, the 18th Street gang, are, are essentially, um, as Homer described them, they're the government. They're running the show. Well, can I can I jump in here? Please. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was told in his reading that this MS-13 gang responsible for a lot of those killings were originally from Los Angeles. Uh, and we, we deported them to, uh, to Central America. But, you know, correct me if I'm, uh, if I'm wrong, but there seems to be a deeper rot, deeper moral rot that's uh, bringing on and exacerbating this crisis. And that is the way in which the war on drugs has, uh, has created a uh, has caused these, these whole, whole economies and societies to collapse, and I don't know how, to what degree we've been complicit in uh, funding some of the, you know, what, what or these uh, 
anti-communist uh, uh, paramilitary forces that are probably up to their their eyeballs in the, in the drug trade, and it's 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 a when you start to peel away all the layers of of moral complicity, moral rot, uh, uh, in, uh, you know, incompetence, it's you know, it's it's pretty it's pretty scary. Um, I mean, we got to begin somewhere, but I do think you know, seeing this is just a border issue. It's a bit jejun, a bit uh, naive. I think there's a, there's a big fight ahead of us to try to, to bring uh, some kind of, of human uh, settlement to what's going on. I have um, little doubt that even though we heard very little about what's going on in those countries just now because there was so much uh, it, it, it's such. It, it's been so hard for the journalists to get their arms around this story, which was so phenomenal and profound and historical. So they've had, and, and they're not getting into the centers where the kids are. So that's a big job that they've been um, having to do in Texas primarily, and I guess Arizona and New Mexico, and even here in Louisiana, as uh, Homer was pointing out in, in um, a couple of the uh, towns here. Um, they're going to get to that, though. It seems to me like it's dangerous. I'll bet it's very dangerous. But I can't believe that the media, which managed to flip this around, because let's not forget whatsoever that I don't believe we would be where we are here today with the rescinding of this order if it weren't for the media, if it weren't for the images of these children being torn away from their parents, the audio of the kids calling out for mama and papa. I don't believe that if we didn't have that, and once again, the importance of the media in a democracy, then we would not be here where we are today with the, with the end of at least that portion of really misguided immigration policy. So I think the journalist's next step is going to have to be to get to pick up on what is going on there. I, I, I frankly don't have the... I, I don't have the guts. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be the one that would be out on the front lines in in trying to figure it out. But um, so, isn't that the there, next step? Is to figure out what is really going on there and to to yeah, figure. I, I would add that you know there have been some really great reports um, looking at kind of the underlying reasons why people are are, are fleeing the violence and the nature of that violence. Um, the UN. The United Nations High Commissioner on Refugees, you know, issued reports, children on the run and women on the run, really kind of taking, you know, a, a significant and deep look at, at people, interviewing them and, and, find, you know, and finding that, you know, there's kind of deep-rooted violence and lack of government protection, uh, that which implicates the need for kind of international protections and protections like asylum. Yeah. Um, please. Away, but... Please send me some uh, material on that. Send me the executive summaries. I'll never get through the – I'm sure those are pretty voluminous reports, but do send me some of the um, uh, summaries that I – because I, I, as I said at the beginning of the show, I, I'm just getting started on this. I'm not going to – I'm going to stay with this. Next week we're going to talk a lot about the comparisons between how this president is handling the situation in the country right now and how – um, democracy died in Germany. 
and uh, I think we have to get to those comparisons. They used to be considered hyperbole no more. And um, thank you so much, Larry and Layla and Homer, for, for being with me. I know it was all short notice um, because I had lots of work yesterday, and so there I was on the phone at 7.30 in the morning. But I appreciate very much you coming on. I'll be back with you. Keep me informed. Stay. Let me know what's going on, and, and do send me those reports. This is Gene Nathan. This has been Crosstown Conversations. And, um, yeah, we'll be back next week with more. Thank <laughs> you.